Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Ty Morgan, financial coach, Christian, and healthcare advocate. We talk about healthcare, his experience with healthcare, and his journey navigating the system for his son. Hi, Morgan. How's everything going, man? It's going great, Jimmy. How are you doing? I am good. What part of the country are you in right now? I'm in Tampa, Florida. We moved down here in 2018 and been here for four years. So it's uh, beautiful weather pretty much all year round here in Tampa. Yeah, except it's a little bit humid for me. I was down in Miami, at least. And uh, oh my gosh, it was just, it was a little too much for me. Yeah, yeah. Miami is a little humid. Tampa is too, but you know, I, I trade that off for for snow and cold. I can't do that weather. So definitely appreciate the work. <laughs> yeah. Where were you before? So I grew up in uh, Alabama. I was, you know, obviously didn't get too cold there, but I was raised in Alabama my whole life and uh, really small towns and um, moved to Florida after college. So it's been a, been a nice move. That's for sure. Oh, that's good. That's good. So I brought you on the show, not necessarily for a particular you know, industry or something like that, but because of your family. So can you tell us sort of like what your background is and who you are before we get into that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, Jimmy. I can do that. So we've really, my family and I, we've been having to navigate impossible circumstances and uh, we've used three tools really to do that. It's been the Bible, infinite banking and Bitcoin. And mm -hmm. me as a person, I'm a Christian, a husband and a father of three. I'm also a business owner now. And uh, like I said earlier, I was born and raised in Alabama in a small town called Nanafly, Alabama. There was only about 94 people that resided there. I was making the jump from Alabama to Florida. You know, it's been big as far as the people that were around. And I actually grew up on a, a small family farm called Poor Boys Hill. And my grandparents lived on Copperhead Road across the street. So I was about as country as you could get. Um, so that's a little bit about my background and where I was raised. Mm. Okay. And tell me about your family. When did you get married? What's been, what, you know, what's your family like? Yeah, absolutely. We're ma married to my wife, Alexis, and uh, we have three beautiful children. And we have our son, who's been a big blessing to us and a miracle. You know, we were told he had a 0% chance of a life and that we should abort him. We chose not to make that decision. And we've been on a long journey since 2020 of saving him. And then, you know, he's been doing really well. And, and, you know, we're proud of that. And now we're sharing his story. Mm. Yeah. So tell me more about that story. Because to me, it's just absolutely fascinating how the healthcare system sort of, I don't know, encourages a certain way of thinking and sort of establishes certain types of values. So tell me more about, you know, what that was like going through that process with your, you, you and your wife with, uh, with your son. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll, I'll kind of backtrack a little bit. So there's really been mm -hmm. two miracles that we've experienced since January of 2020. So the first mm -hmm. one, the first miracle we had was, like I said, I was raised in Alabama, grew up on the family farm. And my grandfather, obviously, was, uh, my family is financially illiterate, I would say, growing up. So at the age mm -hmm. of 64, he's out working for money in Alabama. And a pine tree that he's cutting down with chainsaw takes a wrong turn and comes and crushes his left skull in. Now, the doctor said at best he would be, you know, a vegetable, but 60 days later, that tough old man is up and walking out of the hospital. And when that accident happened, I happened to start my first business. I started that, um, but there was no activity in it. I just started it because I knew eventually, you know, I wanted, wanted to learn more about money and make it work for me instead of working for money because I was an employee at that time. Now, we fast forward to June 2020. 
My wife and I are trying for our second child and she, we can see bracing. And for the first three months, everything is perfectly fine. Um, all the checkups are good. Everything is going very well. And during this time, we're going to his checkup on the 17th of September. Um, but the day before this, I'm going to tie this together. It's kind of everywhere. But on the September 17th, we were going to Brayson's regular appointment. But on September 16th of 2020, Hurricane Sally actually hits the coast of Alabama. And when it did so, it actually damaged my parents' home to the point where they had to move out of it. And now I'm going to jump back to Brayson's story, and I'll tie this together here at the end. On the 17th, we go to our regular doctor's appointment for Brayson, our son. And on the ultrasound, they can't see him because there's no fluid. And so that day, they say, hey, there's nothing we can tell you today, but we need to send you to a specialist. So the doctors knew there was something wrong, but they refused to, to tell us at that moment. So they sent us to a specialist clinic. So we have to wait two weeks because that's what the healthcare system, everything moves really slow. And so we wait two weeks and we finally get to this specialist clinic. And this is during COVID. So I'm not allowed in. My wife has to go in alone and she's in there for an hour. I'm on FaceTime with her and she's getting ultrasounds. And they have trouble seeing him still because it's been two weeks since they saw the fluid. And we get on that FaceTime. And after an hour, the ultrasound tech finally tells my wife, hey, your husband's going to need to come in and you're going to need to speak to the doctor. And so they send my wife back to a special room um, for the doctor to come see us. And before I walk in, I get out of my car and I just look up and I just say a quick prayer. God, you know, I don't know what to say in these moments. If you can, please just put some words in my mouth to tell my wife. And my wife's in there waiting on me, emotional, and, you know, she's crying. She's on the phone with uh, my mother-in-law. And before I sit down, I walk in, walk in the room, a little teary-eyed, and I say, no matter what this doctor says, we're not going to abort this child. And that's what I tell her. And two minutes later, lo and behold, the doctor comes in, and he gives her the diagnosis. The diagnosis is called bilateral renal agenesis, and uh, that means complete absence of kidneys and bladder. And he goes on to explain to us universally, this is 100% fatal. And the options I'm going to give you are number one, abortion, or number two, stillbirth. So that means when our child was born, we wouldn't meet him. He would be born um, dead. And he really sold the abortion side of it. So instead of giving us options, he just told us about the abortion. And he made it almost sound like, you know, like you're going to just get a massage or something. He said, yeah, I know this really nice clinic. You can just walk in. I'll take care of you, um, make everything you know nice and comfortable for you, um, kind of selling the abortion. And so mm-hmm. we refuse that information because that's just not an option. I'd already stated that, you know, with God putting them, putting that in my mouth. And so we go on and we continue working and pushing and we actually find this trial. And how we find this trial is because my parents' home got damaged in Alabama. They had met a doctor who was connected to the RAF trial, a brand new study for children like my son, Brayson, who had bilateral renal genesis. And so we picked up and we relocated to Baltimore, Maryland to be on that RAF trial. Mm. Wow. So the doctors basically had determined that this was a fatal condition for your son and they were really selling that abortion. I mean... I guess my question is, were they just completely off base? What what was going on? What like did they misdiagnose or like did they diagnose properly? They just didn't understand it. Like because he said it was one hundred percent fatal. What's going on? Yeah, so no, that they are right. So before twenty twenty, there has been only one case of a survivor, um, and that was like you know off record. And mm-hmm. so in, in his notes, though, because I asked him for his notes so I could go do my due, due diligence, he had he actually had three options in his notes. And I kept those and saved those. Number one was abortion. Two was stillbirth. 
And the third one was, you know, you could inject saline solutions, but that's what the rap trial does is you could take action mm-hmm. to potentially save his life. Uh, but he didn't even mm-hmm. present those. So that's where he's not wrong off of maybe recommending an abortion or stillbirth because that was the odds at that time but where he where the doctor and the healthcare system was wrong is not giving patients the full picture because in his notes, he said that there was that option. Um, he just chose not to give it to us. Oh, that sounds awful. Why? I mean, he just, he knew about it, but he didn't tell you? He didn't know about the trial itself. He knew about the actual steps that could be taken. And what the trial mm-hmm. is, what the trial is trying to do, and um, these seven facilities that are a part of it now, they're really trying to standardize this practice. So in the future, children like our son can go through this as a, a, a standardized process and be safe. Whereas before there was no standardized process and it wasn't safe to practice this, but this trial is going to make it safe. Um, this doctor was not aware of the trial, but he was aware of people that did, you know, things off the record that were like this trial. Hmm. Okay. Well, so you moved to Baltimore and you're, uh, you know, you're trying to save your son's life. What happened then? Yeah. So um, we're, we're moving to Baltimore and um, my wife and my son are the stars of the show. Definitely not me. I just sit back and kind of watch. Mm-hmm. And we, we're in Baltimore and she goes through 25 amnio infusions to to save our son. So that's where she goes to, to the doctor and um, the nurses and they do an ultrasound guided uh, procedure where they take about a seven inch long needle and they inject saline solution into the wound. And the reason they do that is because the kidneys and the bladder are responsible for producing amniotic fluid. And um, that's what, you know, develops children's lungs. So that's why the diagnosis beforehand was 100% lethal because without kidneys and a bladder, the lungs can't develop. But we inject the saline solution and they did that 25 times. And his lungs were able to fully develop. And on January 21st, 2021, Brayson was born and he came out kicking and screaming like every other baby that would come out. And then after that is where the journey got really rocky. And we can go in that um, in detail if you'd like that too. But you know, obviously, we got to Baltimore. We were able to save him and get him to that point through the RAF trial and save him. That's really another thing we want to do is, you know, give that exposure to people to get these diagnoses. Hmm. So basically, they instead of the amniotic fluid somehow had leaked out. So you're injecting saline in order to keep the baby swimming in some sort of fluid. And you did that 25 different times. And the baby is able to survive and you have a beautiful son that's born you're in baltimore what happens next yep and then our son's born and so what what we needed we knew this was going to be because they explained everything to us the trial there johns hopkins did a wonderful job and so the first day of his life because he was able to breathe room air and didn't need um, any assistance breathing they did three surgeries his first day of life they placed a broviac line so that's a line that goes in the upper part of your chest and it's for blood draws and to give medications. They placed a G tube for feeding just in the event that he wouldn't be able to feed by mouth. And then mm-hmm. they also placed what was most important. It's called a peritoneal dialysis catheter. And that peritoneal dialysis catheter acts as his kidney since he was born without kidneys. Mm-hmm. And he handled those surgeries beautifully and he was healing over the first 11 to 14 days. They really don't want to use the PD catheter because it needs to heal and set so that you can use it for the long term. But after 11 days, they started trying to flush it to get ready to use it. And it came down to where it was completely unusable because it became occluded on the insides. That means that the holes for the catheter are blocked. So fluid cannot mm. move in or out. So mm. he had to go on and have three additional surgeries on just that PD catheter within the first 21 days of his life. So mm. it's a really extreme heartbreak. And 
that's kind of where we're at now and sharing his story. And um, because of that, we decided to go out and build um, a new peritoneal dialysis catheter because we don't want, you know, we want to advise people to go do this trial and save their child, but we don't want them to go to the heartbreak of the additional surgeries that aren't necessary. Hmm. Well, so why wasn't he born without kidneys? It, was it something with the amniotic fluid or was it something else completely? So he's done every genetic test and on demand. We've looked into mm-hmm. everything on why he wouldn't have kidneys. It's just um, a, a genetic anomaly, they call it. Mm-hmm. There's no rhyme or reason as to why this occurs. It occurs in about 1,100 pregnancies per year in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And it's just one of those things that, you know, God gave him that for not have kidneys. And we're just thankful that he's here and able to fight each day. But uh, there's no medical diagnosis as to why. Hmm. Okay, so he's born without kidneys, but you have some sort of dialysis way to essentially do the function that that the kidneys would normally do. So you're, you know, goes through a bunch of surgeries in the first 20 days of his life. What's he been like since? Yeah, so he had those first three surgeries and then the... (laughs) excuse my language, the damn catheter still wouldn't work, right? So mm-hmm. we keep going on to that. And so we go to 30 more days. And on March 10th of 2021, he actually went into an episode because of his catheter not working properly called DIC. And we actually had to call everybody in our family and over FaceTime and tell him goodbye. And they had the chaplain on us and everything that night. But somehow mm-hmm. that little guy, he fought through it and he's still here today. And he continued on his stay in the NICU for 225 days. He had 14 additional surgeries, ended up having a stroke. And now he's up to 30 total diagnosis when he started with the one, uh, but he has 30 total. But somehow we got him home on my wife's birthday, September 3rd. And uh, the little guy is, he's fought every day and he's at home now and he's doing, he's doing fantastic compared to what the alternative was. And we're just really proud of him there. Hmm. Well, so you're going through this as a parent. What, what was that? whole like having him continuously have these medical things like and what was that like especially on your for your finances and stuff like that yeah so it's uh it's pretty tough it's finances um so interesting enough like i said started a business with uh with my grandfather's injury okay and so i had no idea any of this was coming down the pipeline so luckily i began the infinite banking concept saving up money through that I began saving money in my money pool and I planned on use it for businesses, real estate investments, you know, other things like that. I had no, had no idea I was going to be paying for healthcare bills um, uh, of this, this magnitude and, and kind of relocating. And so we prepared for that. And then I asked, I was actually an employee at, in 2020. So during that year, so the day we are, or the week before we're relocating to go to Baltimore, Maryland, I'm asking my former employer, Hey, can I transfer with the same position to go to Baltimore? We have reasons in that area which I had told them about the diagnosis and everything. And I don't know if this persuaded their decision or not, you know, not my business. And um, they said, no, we can't keep you in the same position. We can offer you a remote position making $75,000 a year less so you can be with your son and things like that. I said, uh, no, thanks. I'll figure it out on my own. And, and that same day, my employer said, no, I got uh, my first business consulting contract and that new entity had started. And um, we were able to survive and float, you know, with that. And what we really were focused on is obviously paying for the moves and then, the additional healthcare costs that came. I stopped counting once it got to fifty thousand dollars, and uh, mm. I just I said there's no price tag you could put on saving our son, and so we've uh, we've done that. And throughout this journey, uh, that's kind of 
how I found you and everything like that. I was mm-hmm. an, uh, in Bitcoin. I was an anti-Bitcoiner for all these years, but through my son's journey, it's actually changed me to be pro-Bitcoin and, and seeing the benefits it can have in the financial system. Okay. So what was it specifically about that journey that got you into Bitcoin? Because that, that part to me is fascinating. Yeah. So I've been anti-Bitcoin the whole time. And in September, once my son got home, you know, I made a promise just between me and God that I'd go out and share his story and get his testimony out there. And uh, I was a former athlete, so I always have like just how I prepare for different things. So before I go on somebody else's podcast, I always listen to podcasts. So I just, you know, know kind of what, what they're talking about, their stories, like how they are as a, um, as a host. And uh, mm. before I went on one, I actually, I'd heard about Bitcoin before, obviously. And then I, I had a group that I'm a part of, a wealth group that I'm a part of, and uh, a younger gentleman that joined kept telling me about Bitcoin and uh, kept telling me about it. And I was like, you know, whatever, like it's, it's just Bitcoin. But I watched you on KOG Entrepreneur Show and how you broke mm-hmm. it down and the Christian, the Christian Christianity and how it relates to the Bible and it's biblical to Bitcoin is what kind of broke me of saying, okay, I've been wrong about this for 10 plus years. I need to start looking more into Bitcoin. So we, I began my education process, buying books mm-hmm. and reading everything I could on Bitcoin. And um, just being able to see the truth and the value and how it's going to hold long term would just be beneficial to society. Hmm. So you, you started understanding it. And how did it sort of integrate into your worldview? And like, I guess, like what actions did you take as a result? Yeah, so actions I took personally. So obviously, I started the IBC concept and I had money stored up there after I'd paid back mm-hmm. loans I took for myself um, for my for moving for our son and things like that. I took a portion of that and I use it to, to buy quite a significant chunk of Bitcoin to hold long, long term to store value. And also, you know, just you and I'm starting to learn how to begin use it in daily life. And then also I looked at different alternatives such as, you know, debit cards that are tied to Bitcoin, how to use those and get rewards back. Those are what I did personally. Mm, okay. And now you're sort of like teaching other people. So tell me more about that. Yeah. And so I'm not necessarily teaching other people about Bitcoin specifically. I mainly focus on, you know, Christianity, the infinite banking mm-hmm. concept. And then I do talk to people about Bitcoin and try to open their eyes to it. And really what I say is, and I actually use some of y'all's content and thank God for Bitcoin, is breaking down the five principles of money that it needs to be divisible, portable, durable, recognizable, and scarce. And also mm-hmm. try to try to show them the difference between money versus currency that bitcoin is money it's going to store value over time versus currency like the fiat it's by decree and it and with currency it must remain in motion or it dies and they keep having to print more of it um, where it's not going to hold its value and obviously it creates inflation which creates all these other bad things throughout the economy Hmm. okay so tell me more about like what it's like now as a family that has this little guy that's got all these medical things like uh, like what's it like and more importantly how is it affecting you as a family because you know i'm sure there are a lot of negatives of having to go to the doctor all the time and everything like that but there's also like a deep joy in it i always feel like I see when when you're talking about this stuff you know and how emotional get you get about it so Tell me more about that. Yeah, absolutely. As a family, obviously there's restrictions and there's needs. And he's he goes to doctor's visits quite frequently, at least, you know, once a week. And then, you know, just depending on the week, sometimes there's three or four in a week. Because he has all kinds mm-hmm. of specialists that he sees. 
So from that that standpoint as a family, you know, it can be restrictive, but at the same time, I, I've always been a real, from my perspective, and my wife's kind of to me about this, a real futuristic thinker, always trying to think out into the future, not being in the present moment. But having bracing and going through this journey as a family, we've actually grown tighter. Our bond has grown, grown stronger and we're able to be present and be there for all of our children. So, you know, and even even from the standpoint of we've made such a stand now that our, our daughter, our seven year old daughter used to go to public school. We've now sent her to a private Christian school and, you know, we're able to be more involved in the community. We're able to be more involved in our businesses and, and spend more time as a family and just really appreciate it. Because going through the things that we went through with Brayson, you just sit and ponder each day and, and you're thankful to spend another day with him because, you know, it really makes you sit and think that tomorrow isn't promised where everyone says that. But until you're in a situation like that, you don't really you don't see it through until you're in it. Mm. Well, so let's talk about like the entire process, right? Because in, in a sense, like the doctor that initially diagnosed everything seemed to think that abortion was the thing. Like, where did things go wrong? Because obviously that guy was wrong. And you went through a lot of this stuff. And it's been a rich and fulfilling part of your life, a very meaningful part of who you are at this moment. What's the problem? How did we get here? And why is it so, I don't know, like, you know, almost evil, (laughs) like in sort of discounting a baby's life, I guess. Right. And, you know, Florida, and I I mean, I don't want to get too political here, but I can, you know, Florida has been a really good state as far as, you know, I think from an economic standpoint, trying to do a good job throughout, you know, COVID and over time, they've been a really good state. But what's interesting to me is that still, even in a state like Florida, you know, they promote and push abortion up to 24 weeks. And for me, I just think that it's a systematic issue and it, it starts for me and what I believe at money. Our money's been diluted and devalued and it's no good. And therefore, it's kind of rotting out into other systems such as the healthcare system. So now instead of valuing all human life, they look at it as a nuisance to the system and they just promote abortion because it's easier and it's an easier path versus, you know, taking that family to take the stand and see what they can do for their child. And then also, you know, it's, it's really interesting, and I'll go down this rabbit hole too. We had to go to Maryland to save our child, which is probably one of the most highest abortion rate state that's out there. And actually now, they actually allow babies to die past 28 days of birth. They just passed that law, mm. which is really interesting mm. to me that they also were willing to try this trial to save our son. And um, I, I think from... I think from a standpoint of we've just kind of lost our soul as a nation. And I think it'll start back when we get the economy and our money sound that we'll be able to put an end to, to things like this as far as promoting abortion instead of giving the option of this trial that's out there that has funds to, to cover it. Hmm. Well, so let's get a little bit political here, because I think there is something about what you're saying. Because, you know, all of the money that's going into the healthcare of your son was I don't know, maybe considered like extraneous by this doctor or the healthcare system. Hey, like it's just going to, you know, maybe he's trying to, maybe he thought he was like being compassionate to you by saying, you know, like go do the abortion, you know, it'll be over and, you know, you can try for another kid or something like that. Like for him, his value structure was very much like, okay, well, the baby's going to kind of die anyway. So why spend you know, try to minimize the cost or something like that. Like, what's your reaction to 
you know, people, I guess, thinking that way of sort of treating human life as, I don't know, something that's almost like a burden or something to society. Yeah. And uh, for that doctor in Florida, you know, I think honestly on the back end, I'm not a doctor, but I believe there's kickbacks for, or not a kickbacks, but there's obviously fees for when they afford abortion and they, so that, to that referred that they have to send the referral to that specialty clinic to come to do the abortion. So it's kind of incentivized in the, mm-hmm. in the law and in my opinion. And then also I would say the only people that lost potentially lose money in this situation, is not the hospitals or the doctors. Uh, Cause I've seen the bills that have rolled through there and it would be the insurance companies. And I think the way that the, the current structure it's set up is that the insurance companies kind of pulled the string. So I think really they're the problem with their administrative fees that they're pushing the abortion because it's cheaper on them. Because the hospital itself on my son made made well over a million dollars as far as care and facilities that was covered by insurance. So mm-hmm. as far as profitability, he's actually really profitable for the hospital, but not mm-hmm. so much for the administration of the health insurance portion side of it. So I really do mm-hmm. think, obviously, we have the Affordable, Affordable Care Act, which it does the opposite of that. Health insurance is actually way out of control and too expensive mm-hmm. for us. But uh, yeah, I think that's where it is. The, the pressure is coming from behind the scenes on these large insurance companies. They kind of control, yes, you can do this or no, you can't do this, which I think is really strange given that's the doctor that's practicing medicine while the insurance companies make those decisions behind the scenes. Mm, Yeah, there's like an economic calculation. All right, so let's think a little bit more deeply about this. How does sort of fiat money or the rampant money printing, like how does that affect all of the sort of experience that you went through? Was there, I don't know, maybe some form of, you know, like some reason why fiat money and all all of the inflation and money printing like affected your experience, you think? Or like, I don't know, are we reaching here? Yeah, no, I think we can find something to tie it to. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I believe COVID, I mean, we went through this during the COVID time. So obviously, COVID was bad. Don't get me wrong, a lot of people suffered from COVID. But I believe it was more centrally planned and done by by the central planners that needed to print more fiat. I mean, just over, mm-hmm. just over the time since, you know, 2020, with what increased the money supply trillions and trillions of dollars over. I mean, so much so we're at like 6.2 trillion deficit mm-hmm. on a macro scale. And that's about, if you, if you were to break that down about per person in the United States, that's about $80,000 in debt per person. And then, you know, if you add someone like my son there that, you know, could cost a large insurance company money, they're not, if they got bailed out with some of these COVID funds, obviously that's taken away from their profitability and, and retained earnings. Uh, that's kind of a way that I would look at it and kind of tie it, tie it there, if that makes sense. Mm. Well, so let's um, let's think about that because the insurance companies kind of get the subsidy through all of the extra money printed, which means that they want, you know, health insurance and healthcare costs are much higher than they would be otherwise. So, you you know, when when you're thinking about what's going on in general in the healthcare system, there's probably a lot of, you know, I don't know, procedures that may, that are done not as a way to heal people, but to keep them more sort of like enslaved to the system or to, keep them around as revenue generators or something like that. I know that's the case for something like diabetes, for example. They they don't really cure diabetes as much as they manage it. And that management is enormously profitable to 
all the parties involved, especially the drug company. So I don't know, like, do you feel like that's happened somewhat with your son? Or is that like, maybe not as relevant? Or because there is sort of like this, you know, obviously, there's a lot of things that, you know, the surgeries and diagnoses that that are going on. But how much of it is like, you know, a way like corrupted by this uh, sort of like healthcare industrial complex? Yeah, actually, I'm glad you you brought that into the mix. I've told my wife this, that, you know, 14, he's had those 14 surgeries. He's been on Mm. more medicines than I even ever knew existed. And a lot of them I've actually had to, like some of the surgeries, I was actually arguing the doctors not to do them. And Mm. we actually, it's kind of like the gang up on us. I I mean, when we had to change out his catheter, for example, we didn't want to, we wanted to heal and focus on nutrition because that's a basic human need, but they wanted to focus more on getting the surgery, replacing the catheter and Hmm. continue to pump in with more meds. For example, I can give a a real life example. This makes no sense to me. Obviously I'm not a doctor, but they were giving him medicine called Midadrin and then Mitadrin. Those are both the same type of medicines. One raises blood pressure and one lowers blood pressure because the kidneys help regulate blood pressure. So they, they were giving him these meds to help stabilize his blood pressure. But instead of just letting it naturally do it through dialysis, they would try to artificially keep his blood pressure at a certain level by hitting with, with one drug and turn around the next hour hitting with the other if it wasn't within the parameters. As for me, mm-hmm. that was a big waste of time because now we've got him at home. We don't give him, you know, I've been able to work with the doctors here in Tampa as far as cutting down his medicine you know, from 14 to probably about seven now. And we keep having to push. And as parents, we're always the one having to advocate to get him off medicines or get him off of additional, you know, therapies or whatever that's that's extra that's not needed. And so, you know, just from a firsthand experience being there, I think a lot of what they do is waste a waste of resources and a waste of time. So I definitely can speak to that point. And uh, maybe they're incentivized by these drug companies and by the administration teams to push this through. So that's, that's a very good point, Jimmy. Yeah, that seems kind of wrong. Like something seems really, really wrong about that. That instead of actually healing people, the healthcare system almost like tries to perpetuate itself and, you know, make profits for these companies where it's almost like we're the things that are being, we are their cattle or something that they keep shearing or we're the sheep that they keep shearing. And, you know, they're just kind of waiting to, for the wool to go back so they can shear us again. It just, something seems really wrong about you know, that sort of mentality of, you know, like drugs or surgery are the first thing rather than something like nutrition or, you know, more alternative things that that could be a lot more sustainable. Instead, they kind of get you dependent on their stuff. Right. Yeah. And I I know, you know, he's been on um, three drugs. I can give this example too. you know, a little follow up Mm -hmm. three drugs for his stroke. Okay. And I Mm -hmm. mean, my grandfather had a brain injury as well. Obviously he's a grown man. He was only taking one for his brain damage where my son's on three. And I I can tell you, he he doesn't need all three. So here over the last two months, we've been um, going back and forth with the neurologist to get him weaned off of some of those drugs that actually had to be, you know, they had to get those approved to even give to him because they're for adults only. So that's been one recent battle that I can also, you know, attribute to that. Yeah. And how much do these drugs cost? How, how much of a 
you know, benefit does uh, do these drug companies get as a result of him being on it? Oh uh, yeah, they range from you know ninety dollars all the way up to about twelve hundred per refill, and you know he's on on ten different drugs. So if you were to do that a thousand dollars a pop, I mean that's ten thousand dollars a month right there. Uh, wow! So yeah. and, and these are just the drugs. <laughs> like, yeah, that's just crazy. the drugs. Yeah. So and then there's a whole host of other things that um, come along with his care, such as you know he gets a PD machine and he gets um, dialysis solution and all those things that come in each month as well. Yeah, I, I mean, what's crazy about the drug stuff is that they're extremely cheap to manufacture. And it's really just sort of, you know, they have a patent on it usually, and they'll give you the prescription. And really for the pharma company, it's like almost pure profit, at least until like the patent runs out. And you pretty much have to suck it up and, you know, pay for, you know, whatever deductible might, you know, whatever the insurance pays minus whatever you have to pay. It's this giant game where these pharma companies make, you know, I mean, sick, sick amounts of money on all this. And, you know, I mean, your son's on 10 different drugs. That that's that seems crazy to me. I mean, granted, he's got some problems, but the number of drugs like seems completely unnecessary. I'm sure some of them are to regulate blood pressure or something like that. And a lot of it can be done you know, a lot better through nutrition, through, you know, lifestyle changes and things like that. Instead, they want, almost want you to, you know, live a life that's uh, more dependent on them. Right. And uh, yeah, a big thing too, like obviously he's, he's slightly delayed physically, mentally, he's coming along mm-hmm. beautifully, but, you know, physically mm-hmm. he's delayed from being in the NICU for seven, eight months and being able to get out of the crib. Mm-hmm. And so a big thing, that's why we were trying to get off of the seizure med that they still wanted to to continue to put him on and instead of you know actively doing therapies and doing things that are actually beneficial for his physical development they keep him on the seizure meds that make you lethargic and unable to continue to develop so it just creates this long-term cycle of okay mm-hmm. he's going to be on these meds and that's that is what it is and that's like so early in life too where you need that like stimulation and all of that and instead they it's strange because they they don't seem to want him to really live they're just sort of almost like concerned more with keeping him just alive enough or something like that, which seems wrong to me. Like it's not letting him thrive. It's just sort of, all right, let's make sure he's alive for the moment. And, you know, who cares if he's completely lethargic or whatever and isn't developing. Like these are very important months of his life and, I don't know. It, it feels really wrong to, you know, impose all this. And I imagine like the doctors pretty much told you, you have to be on it and scared you into all of it. Right. Right. No. Yep. They have. And um, but I'm pretty strong willed. And so that, that is the one thing, if you're going to have a child like this, you're going to have to be as big as advocate and you don't have to be rude, but you're going to have to be stern with doctors and, and not back down. Yeah. They're the ones with the license to practice medicine, but you're going to have to advocate and push for your children. And learned a whole lot more about medicine and the medical world than uh, I ever intended to in life. Uh, that That is for sure. Mm. Well, so what's your advice to, I guess, parents that might have children that do have some of these problems? Like, what would you say for them to do to be their advocate? What are some practical things that they should be doing? 
Yeah, so some practical things that we do every time we get a new diagnosis or we get new medication. Obviously, Google is your biggest resource. You get out there, you can do your own due diligence and research. I mean, so much so that, you know, for his catheter being included, we've come out to create a new version of, a, of the PD catheter specifically for infants so that they don't have to have additional surgeries that he had had due to the catheter not working. And there's, I've, I've found plenty of articles and research that show how often catheters actually get occluded instead of the medical field or someone in the medical field trying to find a new technique that'll prevent that. They just complain about it and move on. So as a parent, I would say, just be willing to take the actual step to go learn about what your child has and then apply it. So no one's going to know your child better than you. Um, I, I don't care what they have behind their name. You know, we've been able to to guide and, and bring bracing up these, these past eight months much better and much more efficiently than they did seven months in the hospital. He developed zero um, there at the hospital, but here at home, we've got him grabbing, reaching for toys, um, coming along, talking to his sister, playing around. So just don't be afraid to get out there and learn it and do it and apply it yourself. That's going to be my advice to parents. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, so we've been talking here for a while. What are some other sort of things that you're having going to have to deal with going with his future? Like what are some possibilities? What are, uh, like I'm sure the doctors have told you certain things about, you know, what what his life is going to be like. What are you know, what are some of those things that they've told you? Yeah, so he's only about one of eight or nine children, I believe, that are living with this condition. And since, you know, you know, it's 100% fatal before this, these are the first eight or nine. The doctors were really, really cautious and conservative with predicting what his life was going to look like. And so, but the, the next step that we have to cross with him is we're going to have to go in and do a kidney transplant and create like an artificial bladder system. So that way he could take the peritoneal dialysis catheter out and um, use that kidney so he can start living a more normal and functional life. Now, we have gotten mixed reviews as to whether or not he can ever pee as like a normal person where they can create a bladder, a bladder or um, not. So we'll see with that. And then long term, every 15 to 20 years, potentially eligible to get a new kidney transplant, just depending on how long that kidney they get lasts them. And as far as long term lifespan, you know, he's the first of his kind as far as these patients go. And so um, we're still involved with the study and we report back to them on how he's doing uh, about every six months and how he's growing and developing. So the future families kind of know what to expect. So um, right now we're kind of blazing that path and we'll see what uh, Mr. Brayson is able to do. Well, oh, so he doesn't have a bladder and I guess he doesn't pee. Is that what's happening right now? Yeah. Yeah. So um, he's completely reliant on that peritoneal dialysis catheter. Mm -hmm. um, he has no kidneys or kidney tissue and no bladder. So he's never peed before. And um, when he gets mm -hmm. that kidney, that'll be the first urine his body actually produces. Because right now what the peritoneal dialysis catheter does is it puts dialysate solution, that's like sugar water, into mm -hmm. his peritoneal cavity. And then it draws it back out for 10 to 12 cycles each night. Hmm. Wow, that must be very uncomfortable. But I guess he's never really known anything else. Yeah, he's never known anything else. So, you know, over time, we kind of, as he grows, we expand that and it kind of makes his abdomen expand. So he gets used to it and um, he's gotten pretty comfortable with it, I'd say now. Okay. Wow. Okay. Well, that's been kind of a very sobering, but hopeful story. Where can people find you? Where can people contact you? Yeah. The best place would be silentguardianangels.com. That is silentguardianangels.com. Anyone facing impossible circumstances and needs help guiding their family through that, we'd, we'd love to be you know, a shoulder there to help them through it. And if you know of anyone diagnosed with bilateral renal agenesis and they need support, 
We'd love to do that. And we're actually partnering with the hospital facilities to help people relocate here in the future because that's a big, large portion of the expenses. So um, that's a goal and something that we have set out to do. Mm, I see. Okay. Let's, yeah, hope that everything goes well, but thank you. Thanks, Jimmy. Thanks for having us. Unchained Capital is a sponsor of the podcast. I am an advisor to the company. I know the team well, and I'm excited for what they are building. If you need multi-sig, collaborative custody, or a Bitcoin native financial services partner, learn more at unchained.com. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. Hi, Morgan can be found at createtailwind.com. Until next time, fiat the invest.